thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Kate Lamble, and also with Ginny Smith. Hi, Ginny. Hi there. And this week, we've got a special show all about fracking. All summer, a debate has been raging about the UK's dash for gas, with the likes of Vivian Westwood even joining protesters in Balcombe. So how can it be safe? And could fracking lower the price of your gas bill? We'll be talking to a panel of experts to find out what evidence lies behind fracking safety fears. Along the way, we'd love to hear your voice, so do get in touch by emailing us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientist, or you can find us on Facebook. But before we get into the fracking debate, there's time for us to take a look at what's been making the science headlines this week. So, Kate, what have you got for us? Well, I've been looking at Alzheimer's this week. Now, Alzheimer's is a really important disease for the UK. They estimate that by 2025, a million people will be suffering from the disease. But what a team of Cambridge researchers wanted to work out this week is why did developed countries like Britain and the US have a lot higher rate of Alzheimer's than developing countries? Now, you might think it's just because of our age. We live longer. People get Alzheimer's when they're old so we have a higher rate. But even if you take into account age, Europe still has a much higher rate of Alzheimer's than South America, China and India. Now, there's this hygiene hypothesis, which if you look at the brain of someone with Alzheimer's, you can see plaques that you might have heard about, these tangled proteins called tau proteins, but you also see chronic inflammation, swelling. Now, this is kind of the same thing as you find in autoimmune diseases, this swelling, and that's where the immune system attacks the body. Now, we're all exposed to pathogens, to bacteria, to viruses that our immune system has to fight. And if you're exposed to a lot of them, your body can protect itself from some of these autoimmune diseases, sort of like practice makes perfect in a way. So they were wondering, maybe if we're exposed to pathogens, that would also help protect us against Alzheimer's. So what they did, they took the data from over 100 countries, around 170 countries around the world, developed and developing, and they looked at how many cases of Alzheimer's they had, how many years were lost to disease and disability because of the disease, and also compared it to their rates of hygiene, to water supply, to GDP, and so on and so forth. And they found this really high correlation between those that had really high hygiene levels and those that had really high levels of Alzheimer's. So are they saying here that being clean makes you more likely to get Alzheimer's? Well, that's the difficult thing. The NHS has actually even put out a rebuttal to this to just make it clear to people. So cause is very different from correlation. There's a famous relationship between how much ice cream is sold and shark attacks. Now, that doesn't mean that ice cream causes shark attacks. It just means that at the time of year they're eating a lot of ice cream, people go into the water more. Now, this means that there's a correlation between the two. We still don't understand the underlying cause of Alzheimer's. What they're hoping instead that this will do is for developing countries, we might now be able to understand that as they improve their hygiene, their water supplies and so on, they can predict that they'll get a higher rate of Alzheimer's and they can prepare themselves for it. 
really interesting work there, but it's going to take a while before we really understand before what they've really found. Before we really break down that relationship, yeah. Brilliant. Well, a story that's particularly caught my eye this week is all about cheating. Now, if you think about the idea of cheating, most of us would think that that would leave us feeling quite bad, feeling quite guilty, maybe wishing we hadn't done it. And that's what people predict when they're asked, how would you feel after cheating? But this study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology actually found that although they predicted that negative feeling, people actually felt really good after cheating in this study. So what they did was they gave people some problems to solve and then they let them mark their own sheets and report how many problems they'd correctly solved. So, of course, there's a chance to cheat there. You can say that you solved more problems than you actually did. They were getting paid per problem, so you get a bigger reward. So they then asked them how they were feeling afterwards and they found that the people who cheated actually felt happier, they felt more positive than the people who didn't. So this reward system, did people feel better if they got a bigger reward? The more they cheated, the better they felt. So that was one of the problems with their first study was the people who cheated obviously got more money. So they did another one where they varied the level of financial reward. So sometimes the people who cheated would only be getting maybe 10p more, not enough really to make you feel positive. But they still felt good about it. So what they think is that it's something about the feeling of having done something naughty and got away with it leaves them feeling good. They even found that you get a boost when you're not the one who does the cheating. Someone else does it for you. So in this example, you did the problems, someone else marked them, and then that other person misreported your score. And you still felt good about it. Now, this is quite interesting from an evolutionary perspective and also a little bit worrying because we tend to do things again if they've made us feel good. So this might suggest that if you've had the opportunity to cheat once and realise how good you can feel about it, you might be more likely to cheat again. Now, these were quite controlled circumstances and there were no real negatives to the cheating. There was no obvious loser. So it may not be the same if someone's really losing out. But in this study, at least, it seemed like we're all a load of cheaters. Well, that's how you feel when you get the pub quiz sheet passed around to you and the power of marking it. You feel really good if you get to sort of sneak an extra mark, even if it makes no difference overall. Thanks so much, Ginny. And as always, you can find more information, including references to the papers we've had a chat about on our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash news. Now, you might have been hearing this week about a new building in the city of London that's been cooking nearby cars. Some people are suggesting that the 37-storey skyscraper called the walkie-talkie might be targeting the sun's rays at vehicles because it acts as a parabolic reflector. Here's your quickfire science all about parabolic reflectors and their uses. A parabolic reflector is a curved mirrored surface which can be used to collect and focus energy in the electromagnetic spectrum. Reflectors have a paraboloid shape, so do satellite dishes. When light shines into a parabolic reflector, the rays of light are reflected so that they all converge at a single focal point. If the incoming light to a reflector is sufficient, the temperature at the focal point can be as high as 3,000 degrees C, meaning that items placed at the focus can burn. Alternatively, if a light is placed at the focal point of a parabolic reflector, the rays will be reflected back to give parallel beams of light. For a parabolic reflector to be as effective as possible, it must have an extremely precise construction to prevent the incoming and reflected rays of light from cancelling each other out. For a reflector of visible light, 
This means that construction must be correct to within 20 nanometers. One of the earliest reports of the use of a parabolic reflector is attributed to the Greek mathematician Archimedes in the 3rd century BC. It's said that during the siege of Syracuse, Archimedes used a parabolic arrangement of mirrors to set fire to enemy Roman ships as they approached the city. It is thought that the walkie-talkie skyscraper, which has a 160-metre-high curved glass structure, is acting as a parabolic reflector thus causing it to melt cars and other objects which happen to be placed at its focal point. However, the skyscraper is by no means a perfect parabolic reflector and has so far only been estimated to reach temperatures of around 100 degrees centigrade at its approximate focal point, rather than the thousands of degrees centigrade which could be reached with a purpose-built reflector of this size. The Olympic torch in Olympia is also lit using a parabolic reflector. Thanks very much to Priya Crosby and Hannah Critchlow there. Now we'll be getting on to the topic of fracking in just a moment, but another issue that's been causing environmental campaigners some concern recently is the badger cull, which is intended to restrict the spread of bovine tuberculosis. Roland Keo is a professor of mathematical population biology at the University of Glasgow. He uses theoretical models to investigate the dynamics of infectious livestock diseases, including bovine TB. So, Roland, why is tuberculosis important? Well, tuberculosis is an important human disease. Uh, the bovine form of it does infect humans, so there's certainly a risk of zoonoses. Now, the risk is not very great, so one of the big reasons why we're worried about it is because our status as a country which has a high level of bovine TB means that we are seriously affected in terms of our trade within the EU. So how do you go about studying something like this? Well, there have been all sorts of ways that people have been looking at the disease certainly in the past 30 years. The key one being, of course, epidemiological field investigations. You look at the situation and you see what is the most likely cause of infection. Now, the most controversial one is the randomized badger culling trial conducted from about 1998 for onwards the next eight years, where there was a large study which looked at comparing culling badgers as a way of controlling TB and not culling badgers. And what did they find? Well, they found that there was a definite link between the two of them. Okay, so the one thing we really know is that if you do something to the cattle population, it affects TB in badgers. If you do something to the badger population, it affects TB in cattle. The problem is we don't actually know the direction of that effect. So it could make things better or it could make things worse. Okay, so how do you think TB spreads between animals? Well, TB is spread essentially through aerosolized particles from the lungs. Now, there are a variety of mechanisms by which we can go from individual to individual. So, for example, some people think the environment is involved. So a cow might cough up TB bacteria, then it might lay in the environment for a while and be picked up by another cow, or it could be a badger doing the same thing, or it could be direct contact between animals. But the truth is that it's very difficult to do experiments to actually understand this conclusively, and so we actually don't have that well quantified either. You're a professor of mathematical population biology. How can maths help you study something that seems to be to do with animals and bacteria? In this case, what we have is a whole series of partial pieces of evidence. So, for example, we know something about the way cattle herds are linked together because we record the movements of the cows between them. 
we know something about the way the boundaries are linked to the cattle because we know where the badgers are, roughly speaking, and we know where the cattle are. We know the timing of events. And in terms of our particular studies that we're looking at right now, we're looking at how the sequences of the bacteria that are taken from cattle and badgers are related to each other. And all these various bits of information need to be fit together in a way that makes sense. And that's where the mathematics and the statistics come in, because not one single piece of evidence actually gives us a conclusive picture. Could these kind of methods be applied to other diseases, or do they only work for this kind of tuberculosis? Well, it certainly has been applied successfully for many viruses. So, for example, in the pandemic flu outbreak we had a couple of years ago, whole genome sequencing, so this look at very detailed look at the changes in the genetic structure of the virus in this case, was used successfully to trace the diseases that passed from country to country. Now, we're in a very different situation here where because the bacteria are much larger than the virus, much more expensive to do the work, and also because the variation in the genetics is much less, there's a lot less information there. But it's nevertheless incredibly valuable information. So there's good precedent for using it. We just have to be a bit more clever about how we're using it. I'm not to say that those people who obviously do the virus are very clever indeed. We have to be clever in a different way in order to use the, the same kind of data. So what kind of differences are there and what do you have to do to actually make it work in this example? Well, there's two major things that are a problem. The first of which is that the bacteria itself doesn't change that much from individual to individual. Now, our estimates are that we get about one in every four bacteria might be changed over over the course of the year. So you get a 0.25 changes in the number, uh, an actual mutation in the bacteria over the course of the year. Now, that's a very, very little change. What it means is we can't simply look at one individual or another, look at the bacteria in the two individuals, and say, aha, this individual gave it to that one. Okay, we don't have quite that much information. So that's the first thing. The second one is that because badgers are almost certainly involved to some extent, we're missing half of the information. We have very little information on the badgers. Now, we're working with people at the AHVLA to get more detailed information from the badgers, but nevertheless, there isn't anywhere near as much there available, say, compared to the cattle, which are tested every single year and for which bacteria are gotten on a regular basis. So what do we need to do? When will we actually know whether a badger cull would be effective? It's going to take a while. I mean, first of all, the current badger culls that are being done are not being done essentially as scientific trials. So there's no way to gauge whether the effect of them is due to the culling itself. There's so many other things that are going to be going on at the same time. So that alone isn't going to tell us anything. These data that we're collecting, um, looking across much larger areas, give us in a sense a more comprehensive picture. But at the same time, it's very difficult still to identify any single cause. So, you know, what we have is the ability to get data, which is a much higher resolution than ever before. So we've got a much better chance of picking up differences, say, in an area with culling and without. But it would still undoubtedly be at least several years, if for no other reason than because TB is a very slow-moving disease. So still lots more work to do. There is indeed. Thanks so much to Roland Ko from the University of Glasgow. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kate Numble, and with Ginny Smith. Now on to our main topic for this week, fracking. Now, this has been all over the news recently, with some people up in arms about the fact that it's going to be rolled out across England. But how exactly does fracking work and what are the risks? We're joined tonight by a panel of experts, including Dr Geoffrey Parker, a water engineer from Cambridge University. So, Jeff, what exactly is fracking? Right. So <clears throat> the, what people are trying to do is they're trying to get to this shale rock, which is essentially mud, 
formed from tiny silting clay particles. And uh, sometimes there's algae in there as well, which is this organic matter. And as that mud is deposited and other layers of sediment are applied on top of it, it undergoes pressure and heat over time, and it becomes shale rock. And this shale rock can hold significant quantities of fossil fuels. So this is the source for fossil fuels for the conventional reservoirs. So we think about classic drilling of oil and gas, and uh, you drill a well vertically downwards until you reach a reservoir formation. So there's a source rock, and then there's a reservoir rock. And the reservoir rock is, the characteristic of that is it has high permeability. So you're talking about things like limestone or sandstone. Shale rock, because of it has very small particles, does not have this high permeability. So it only really works these conventional extraction if you have this high permeability. So the breakthrough now of the hydraulic fracturing is that the idea that if you use, if you inject fluid at high pressure, you can create fractures in the shale formation itself and create basically a reservoir or a, a, a tappable source from the shale rock itself. You don't need a reservoir rock above it. So that potentially vastly in- increases the number of geological formations from which you can extract energy. Thanks, Jeff. And we'll be coming back to you in just a moment. So stay right there. So we now know what fracking is, but why has there been such a debate about it? To find out, I mess up with Alla Jones, who's the director of the Global Sustainability Institute at Anglo Ruskin University, and Justin Hayward, who's director of CIR Strategy Consultancy. Alla began by explaining why the UK is currently so keen to explore fracking. So lots of different reasons and global trends that could play into the reason we or the government is very enthusiastic, the main one being energy security and rising prices globally of energy. So in their mind, a way of doing that is to try and find more locally sourced fossil fuels. Yeah, I agree. There is the uh, problem of rising prices of energy globally. From the perspective of business, this is another opportunity for entrepreneurs and industrialists to go out and extract mineral resources which they can do that for profit whilst also helping the energy security problem and also to put downward pressure on the prices of energy for consumers. So we're looking to fill that energy gap at the moment. Alad, you mentioned in their mind is a really good idea. It implies you've got some reservations. What are the potential problems with fracking? Why have we seen so many protests? So I think there's a number of different issues and a number of different reasons for people protesting. The reason people go out on the streets in places like Balkan is a blight on the landscape. Now, they're not huge sites, but the UK is not used to having oil drilling, gas drilling sites around where people live. So it's very unusual. People are much more used to seeing that in the US. However, there are then additional pressures around local communities in particular, so water availability and potential water contamination and potentially earthquakes, although they may be minor. So there's all those environmental problems that could be fairly significant, especially in places like Sussex, where there is already water stress. So no question about it, you can do other things, you can stop farming, you can get people to be much more efficient. But there's an issue around gas as part of that solution, and whether actually that does do anything with prices as well. So there's the economic argument, which doesn't really stack up when you look at the UK, how big it is and how much gas we're going to have. Justin, you mentioned that it's all about economics and businesses getting this new opportunity. Is this just a case of big business coming into contact with sort of rural areas that it isn't used to in the UK? If you look back, you know, three decades or so, there were lots of mines being mined for coal. So we do have a history of activity on the land, 
Onshore wind has been pushed strongly by some quarters, particularly government. And as Alad alluded to, that's potentially more of a blight on the environment than fracking would be because, again, as he mentioned, the footprint of a fracking site is relatively small. You start with a slightly higher tower for literally a few weeks and then it comes down to something that's quite often you know, occluded by the trees around the site. Alan mentioned these other concerns, earthquakes, water contamination that people have. Do those play a part, or is your reckoning that this protests are just based on what we can see? Again, in our, in our conferences, we've had people like Lord Oxborough, who's a, an eminent geophysicist, and from Durham University, Professor Richard Davis, both of whom are experts on fracking. And as I understand it from their presentations that they've given, the risks of water contamination and earth tremors in particular are very low. There can be other problems which are sort of much further down the track to do with how do you decommission these many sites which you will have used to exploit fracking. So it could be comparable with tin mining in Cornwall. Did it blight the environment or not in that area? And this could be a similar result. But actually, if you look at the case of Cornwall, there are some quarry sites, for example, the Eden Project, which have done wonderful things with sites which have formerly been mines. And I think overall, the environmental regulations, the sorts of things that people, local people worry about, those people that are accused of nimbyism, those regulations are much tighter than they used to be. Ali, do you want to come back on that? Are the regulations going to keep everything in check? So we do have much stronger regulations than in the US. So President Bush changed the regulations, so fracking was taken out of it. In the UK, it's true the regulations are much stronger. However, any minor accident, and we know the oil and gas industry don't have a brilliant track record of never having accidents. So if you look at somewhere like Sussex, any accident will take out their water, groundwater. So that has a huge devastating local economic impact. So the possibility of an accident is always going to be there. It doesn't matter how far you minimise it. The companies aren't going to spend enough to get rid of that because it would just make it totally uneconomic. It doesn't matter how many tax incentives the UK government put in place. The other issue is then the climate change issue as well. So the fact that we already have enough carbon in fossil fuels, that if we burnt it all, then climate change, all the targets, we just can't meet them. So the climate change bill in the UK, the stuff we already have... We can't burn all of that already because of the climate change. So why are we looking for more gas? Why are we not investing in the clean energy that we can use under the current regulations? So either we change the regulations and say we don't care about climate change or we are taking stuff out of the ground, incentivizing private companies to make a short-term profit, which won't help the UK national security because they will sell to the highest bidder in return for devastating climate. Ali, do you work for a sustainability institute? Can these cleaner energy alternatives realistically fill that energy gap? If they receive the same amount of investment and focus as fossil fuel and the sort of tax incentives that they're getting, then yes, it requires a whole change in our national grid infrastructure to be able to cope with different availability. But there's absolutely no reason why we wouldn't be able to have huge offshore wind, large-scale tidal, seven barrage, lots of different sorts of technologies, but we need all of them and we need to be focusing on that sort of investment. Having a short-term gap, and the amount of gas in the UK is at best 20 years, and that's from the best estimates from the gas industry, it's probably much lower than that. So it's not even giving us a long time to do something else. We should be focusing on that now. Well, just if the opportunity in fracking is small, then of course it really is a trivial effect on global climate change. 
And I would then believe that entrepreneurs and industrialists should be allowed to go ahead and extract and develop the resources, the small resources that are available. If it's a relatively large amount of gas, and there are indications, as he said, that we could have two decades worth, I think there are figures that show that it may be several decades worth, then this is all useful in helping us address energy security issues and indeed to give consumers the choice to buy local lower cost energy and you know there, there's an immutable law of economics which is that although as was suggested the total decrease in prices even if you have a, a large amount of shale gas extractable viably is small supply and demand economics suggests that there's a downward pressure on the prices Thanks very much to Alad Jones from Anglia Ruskin University and Justin Hayward from CIR Strategy. So there might be enough gas in Britain to supply us for 20 years, but will this actually lower our energy bills? Dominic Ford went to speak to Mike Pollitt from the Cambridge Judge Business School. Electricity generation faces the energy policy trilemma, which is how do we provide low-cost energy, which is low-carbon and which is secure So the challenge is how do you decarbonise electricity generation while maintaining energy security and while delivering reasonably low prices. And by energy security, you mean making sure that we keep the lights on, in essence? In the electricity sector, yes, energy security is about keeping the lights on at a reasonable price because the lights will probably always stay on But the question is, at what cost they stay on? So why is that going to be a problem, particularly in the next decade or so? Is that just because of dwindling fossil fuel supplies or because of problems with the power stations themselves? Well, I think the immediate problem for the UK has been the large combustion plant directive, which has meant that we've had to shut a significant number of our large coal-fired power plants. And that has meant that we've had to replace them with gas-fired power plants. And that process was going very well until quite recently when the government has begun talking about electricity market reform, which is a major reform of how low carbon electricity generation is subsidised in the UK. So why are we favouring gas-fired power stations over coal? Well, we're favouring gas over coal because coal is relatively dirty in terms of greenhouse gases relative to gas because until recently gas-fired power stations were cheaper than coal-fired power stations. So putting those two things together has meant that gas-fired power production has been the choice that electricity companies make when they're making new generation investments. How does fracking enter into that debate? Is this about making sure we've got enough gas to keep those power stations running? No, I don't think fracking has got really anything to do with the security of supply debate in electricity because the electricity problem, if there's going to be one, will manifest itself in the next two to five years. And fracking is all about gas supplies in 10, 15, 20 years' time. The other thing is that the UK is heavily integrated into the European gas market. So anything that happens in terms of UK gas production has to be seen in the context of that. And what that means is that basically we have to look at the size of the discoveries 
of fracked gas in the UK in the context of the market into which those supplies will be sold. That may have some impact on the price, but that depends on the size of the discoveries. But the main impact from an economic point of view will be clearly the UK will be able to sell that gas and simply increase its GDP as a result of producing more gas. In the US, there's been talk of fracking bringing down energy prices quite dramatically because they've been able to be much more self-sufficient in their gas supply. Do you envisage that also happening in the UK? Well, the US is very interesting because what's happened is that in a very short space of time, fracked gas has gone from being insignificant to being about 25% of the gas that's consumed in the US. Now, the sorts of numbers that are being talked about in the UK at the moment are small even in relation to the UK's current consumption of gas. They'd be even smaller in the context of the European gas market. So the likelihood that they would as significantly impact on the price of gas for domestic gas consumers or for gas for power stations is unlikely, I think, anytime soon. Could it be a boost for the UK economy? Oh, yes. I think gas is, of course, a very valuable commodity. And the 150 billion cubic metres of gas that the British Geological Survey has talked about recently, it's only about one and a half years supply of gas that's consumed in the UK, but it's still worth, say, £30 billion. And, of course, £30 billion isn't to be turned down lightly. The environmental campaigners would say that we need to be getting off fossil fuels. We shouldn't be renewing our fossil fuel power stations. We should be building more windmills and solar farms. Do you think that's a realistic prospect? Clearly, we are building a lot more low-carbon generation. I think even if the most optimistic scenarios happen for renewables and nuclear, we're still going to need fossil fuels to meet all of our electricity demands and, of course, to provide the flexible generation which is needed when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine. That was Mike Pollitt from the Judge Business School in Cambridge. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kate Lambert, and with Junie Smith. And we've already had some of your views coming in. So Dana O'Rourke asks, are cheap resources ever an excuse to destroy something we can never hope to fix? I've got one here from David Trethaway as well. He says, if it's successful, won't the drilling companies just take all the profits rather than energy prices falling? We'd love to hear more of your opinions. You can keep your thoughts coming in to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. So Mike there just now was saying that renewables aren't currently a realistic option because their output is so variable. We're joined here in the studio by Dr Tony Juniper, who's an independent environmental campaigner. Tony, what would you say in response to that? We're nowhere near the point when intermittency is an issue for renewables in this country. If you look at Denmark, they're already well over 20% of their power is coming from wind. That country is one of the most competitive and strongest economies in the world. It's not causing a problem there, and it wouldn't cause a problem here if we got behind renewables in a way whereby we were sending clear signals to the industry, driving investment into that sector, building up jobs, competitiveness for the UK, as some other countries are already doing. We will face issues, of course, around renewables and intermittency 
if we get up to a higher level than 20-30%. But then again, there are other renewable technologies that can supply us with power in ways that are much more secure in the sense of being predictable. Tidal power, for example, biomass energy. And also bear in mind that offshore wind in particular, it's very rarely that this country has no wind anywhere around its coast. Bear in mind also that we already have energy storage technologies that are the natural partners of things like offshore wind. If we were serious about electric cars, for example, battery technology would be storing power overnight when people are sleeping, the wind is blowing offshore, cars are being charged up. That's contributing to energy security and reducing our reliance on imported oil at the same time as putting this country in a highly competitive position in terms of its access to future markets based on high technology. We heard from Alad a little bit earlier in the show and he was saying it is possible. We have got the technology. We had a story a couple of weeks ago about new batteries for solar power but it's just about the infrastructure that we currently have and how that we'd have to change that monetarily is that an option of course it is it is a question of how we do it and how we plan for it our infrastructure across the country in in many sectors especially in energy it's ancient it's creaking and it's falling apart in many respects we're retiring old generating plant in the form of coal stations we'll be changing parts of our grid will be, therefore, on the cusp of a major opportunity to modernise the country in ways that are not only going to be able to make us more secure in terms of our energy, but will create many, many tens of thousands of jobs and help to put us at the front edge of this industrial revolution, which is going to be coming in the early part of the 21st century. The world is going to be waking up to these green issues, and actually, we're putting ourselves out of that game. We're driving investment away, and we're creating real uncertainty about where the future of, of energy lies in this country. I mean, wherever the future of the energy lies, we're currently looking at the moment at fracking this dash for gas that is going to roll out across England. What is the environmental problems? Why are people protesting so much against fracking well, in particular? So some of them have been mentioned by previous contributors. One, of course, is the landscape impact. It is worth bearing in mind the impacts of some of this stuff in the United States. I was recently in West Texas and saw the very dense road networks that come with gas fracking because not only do you need the main well that fractures the rocks, you need a network of subsidiary wells to be able to get the gas from the areas where the rock has been cracked. And that can require up to eight wellheads per square mile. I don't think people have have really understood the implications of this yet. But I think once this starts to be done in this country, if we get to that point, I think there will be very serious public pushback. And if I was an investor in this technology right now, I'd be thinking very carefully about whether I really think this is going to happen. There's already been a mention of the risks of water pollution. Those risks can be managed, but there is always a risk there. We have quite complex geology in this country, very sensitive aquatic habitats. We rely a lot on groundwater. But the big thing for me is around the climate change contribution. We are signed up to national legislation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2050. But I think if we do go health for lever for shale gas, we would basically be tearing up the climate change targets that are already enshrined in national law, and I think that would be a disaster. We're going to be looking into some of your concerns there, water contamination, so on, with some experts but a little bit later on the show, but surely other alternatives, we're talking about visual impact here. Windmills are an eyesore. We hear people complaining I all the time about them completely. being in your, in your back garden. I disagree. Wind, wind turbines are very beautiful and, and the, the opinion polls, one after the other, shows us that we have widespread public support, something like 80% of people in this country support the expansion of renewables, including wind. I think they're very beautiful. There is a vocal minority that's managed to whip up quite a lot of support in Parliament to the point where the wind industry now has very mixed signals coming from government. And, you know, it's an interesting juxtaposition of circumstances where we have people in government telling us that we need to be regenerating manufacturing and building our industry here. And one of the growth industries where we have a real edge, not least because this country is described as the Saudi Arabia of wind, we're trying to stifle that industry because of some 
some what I would regard as minority concerns about visual impact. Well, aesthetics might be a personal choice, but we'll be investigating some of those other concerns a little bit later on. Tony, thank you very much. Now, Tony was just talking about climate change. And actually, one of the big problems with shale gas, which is what's recovered during fracking, is that it's made up of methane. And some of this methane might escape during the process. Now, Bob Howarth from Cornell University has been studying the methane emissions from fracking. Hi there, Bob. Hello, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. So why is methane such bad news for the environment? Well, methane is the second largest contributor to global warming after carbon dioxide at the present. And it's, uh, it's equivalent in terms of its current role in warming the planet. It's equivalent to about almost 40% of what carbon dioxide is doing. So it's a major threat. And the critical thing to realize is that the climate system responds on different timescales to carbon dioxide and to methane. The response to methane is much shorter, which means that over the next few decades, any methane that is released is very damaging to the climate. So the most recent models, for instance, show we've warmed the surface of the Earth on average by seven-tenths of a degree over the last 40 years or so. We're on target to up to uh, one and a half degrees, doubling that within the next 15 years, and going to two degrees within 35 years or so from now. And those sort of temperatures are very potentially dangerous. We have the potential to hit a tipping point in the climate system and get into runaway global warming. If we want to avoid that, clearly we need to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, but the methane emissions are even more critical. The only way to avoid those dangerous tipping point temperature changes at this point in time, given the carbon dioxide we've already released, is to start immediately to reduce methane. And if we look at where methane's coming from, it's coming from many sources, but the natural gas industry is one of the top two in the world. It's the number one here in the United States. And so we need to wean ourselves from natural gas even more quickly than other fossil fuels. It's the most dangerous fossil fuel at this point in time, given where we are with climate change. So how likely is it that some of this gas will actually escape during the fracking process? Well, it's definitely escaping. We published a paper on this uh, back in the spring of 2011, which was the first published analysis on how methane leakage might contribute to the greenhouse gas of shale gas. And we said it could be in the neighborhood of 3 up to perhaps 8% of the lifetime production of a well is emitted either at the time of fracturing or as the gas is used, transmitted to final consumers. And the data behind that were, were not well documented. We used the best available data, but they were not well-documented data. But what has happened is that we spurned a lot of uh, interest, and uh, there have been a lot of scientific groups out measuring things now. And, and the, the most recent studies, there are now four or five published studies showing that in these uh, shale gas and tight sand uh, hydrofract fields, that the emission levels seem to be more in the 6 to 9, maybe 12%. So there's a huge amount of methane that is leaking from these fields as it's currently being produced in the United States. So we've been talking about how economically important gas is. If so much of it's escaping, wouldn't the companies want to somehow capture that so that they weren't losing 12% of their profit? Well, it's not 12% of their profits because, of course, they're doing a cost-benefit analysis. They could be more stringent in the technologies they're using, but they need to invest money and they need to invest more time in drilling to do that. They have made a decision to drill more wells more quickly and to use technology which is not as tight, if you will, to the emissions. It's, a, it's an economic decision, and it's clearly a decision they've made. Could we regulate that to reduce the emissions? And the answer is yes. 
Uh, to date in the United States, we haven't been very effective at doing that, but it's, uh, you know, gases are inherently slippery. They easily leak. It's very, very difficult to get every little last bit. And the, you know, methane leakage rate of, of even 1% or 2% is damaging from the standpoint of climate change, quite damaging. I don't think we can possibly get down there even with the best available technology. So we've got a comment that's come in here from Joe from Cambridge who says that he hears that people who live in the US fracking zones can set fire to the water that comes through their taps. How is that possible? There is indeed evidence of that. Uh, Just south of where I live, about uh, 60 miles, you're into the Pennsylvania Marcellus Field, and there's a very strong research coming out of Duke University that's shown that if you live within about a kilometre of a, a gas fracking operation, you have a much higher probability of having elevated levels of methane in your drinking water wells high enough that indeed it it is flammable. The reason for that is uh, still subject to some debate, but my colleague here at uh, Cornell, Tony Ingrafia, who's an engineer who's been working on fracking technology since the 1970s, Tony has combed over the records for the state of Pennsylvania, and what he finds is that at least 6% and perhaps as much as 30% of the fracked wells in Pennsylvania have problems with how they were drilled, how the cement casing was put in uh, within the first year. So there's clearly a mechanism for this gas to to leak out and get into the aquifers, and clearly some of that gas is getting out. Bob, thank you very much. That was Bob Howarth from Cornell University. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kate Nambo, and with Ginny Smith. We've got an email in from Susan Wengel, who's asked us, could it cause earthquakes? And we'll get to that in just a moment. But you can keep your thoughts coming in. Chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can tweet us at Naked Scientists. So while methane emissions that we've just heard about might take a while to show their effects, Britain has already experienced one of the other concerns about fracking. In 2011, two earthquakes in Blackpool were linked to local fracking operations. We're joined on the phone by Brian Bapti from the British Geological Survey. Hi, Brian. Hello. So were those two earthquakes in Blackpool the responsibility of the fracking operations that were going on nearby, or was it just a coincidence? No, the earthquakes were directly linked to the fluid injection that was going on as part of the hydraulic fracturing operation at the time. And in fact, there weren't just two earthquakes, there were 58 recorded in total. Most of those were very, very small. And in fact, the largest one was also pretty small, even by UK standards, it only had a magnitude of 2.3. But nevertheless, it was, it was felt by 50 or so people in the Blackpool area, and it did cause some alarm. How can we know that they're directly responsible? Can we link them up time-wise exactly? Or Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, it's, it's basically looking for a spatial and temporal correlation between the hydraulic fracturing operation. And in this case, we were able to show that the earthquakes occurred very close to the injection well and at roughly the same depth where the injection was ongoing, so around about 2.83 kilometres. And also, in terms of time, the earthquakes all occurred during the time and just after the fluid was being injected as part of the fracking operation. And another piece of evidence is that there is very little background seismicity in that particular part of the, the UK. So if you start to see seismicity in an area when there, where there is none, that's another piece of evidence that maybe something is going on. How would fracking cause these earthquakes? It's really all down to the fluid injection. So what happens when you get and slip on a fault during an earthquake is the slip occurs because the shear stress that acts along the fault surface exceeds the frictional resistance to sliding of the rocks on either side of the fault. What happens when you inject fluid is that it 
reduces the effect of stress on the fault system and increases the pore fluid pressure. And that's a bit like just lubricating the fault. It makes it easier for the rocks to slip past each other. So what happened in the case of Blackpool and in, and in many other examples of injection-induced earthquakes is that these fluids build up and they can build up over relatively short periods of time and allow the rocks to slip past each other more easily. These earthquakes, so they were 2.3 on the Richter scale, I think was one of the biggest. I mean, when we hear about big earthquakes, we're on, we're on 8 or, or 9 on the Richter scale. Yeah. Could we even feel them? Yeah, I mean, people did feel the Blackpool earthquakes. They're round about the bottom of the range of, of, of that people might feel earthquake activity. But of course, they were quite shallow, so that makes it easier to, for people to feel them as well. But yeah, in comparison to large tectonic earthquakes, these earthquakes are tiny. They're pretty trivial, in fact. And in fact, the largest known example that we have of an injection-induced earthquake during hydraulic fracturing occurred in, in Canada in 2011, and it had a magnitude of 3.8. Now, again, that, that might cause some noticeably strong shaking, but still it's, it's well below the level of these large tectonic earthquakes and probably unlikely to cause any significant damage. If we've got a sort of a number of them, you said there were quite a few going on at the same time, even though they're tiny, should that be something that we're worried about? Or is this something that sort of geologically we can just let pass and not worry about? Well, I think it's a good analogy to compare these earthquakes to is what happened during the period of coal mining industry in this country throughout the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, we recorded hundreds, thousands of, of mining-induced earthquakes, and people would feel these reasonably regularly and, you know, really grew to, to kind of be familiar with them and, and to live with them. The largest of those earthquakes uh, didn't exceed more than magnitude of about three. So again, it caused some relatively strong shaking. And the largest, there, there are accounts of some minor damage, things like cracks to plaster, stuff like that, but certainly no structural damage. So there are similar types of industrial activity in this country that have caused similar earthquake activity. So yeah, we, we have experienced this kind of thing before. Thank you so much, Brian. That was Brian Bapti from the British Geological Survey. Now, we heard earlier about the worries of groundwater contamination, and we're still joined here by Geoffrey Parker. So, Jeff, your research group have been looking at risk assessments surrounding this sort of thing. What are the chances of fracking chemicals actually getting into the water supply? All these things are, I think I would echo everyone else's opinion, everyone's so far's opinion that it's very locally dependent and geology is very complex. So things like the Marcellus Shale is a pre-existing, a lot of fractures vertically in that geologic formation previously. So there is some question about how much of that is the well, how, which it possibly could be leaking, and how much of that is the uh, sort of the natural geologic formation from previous tectonic activity or from uh, glacial activity historically. The shallow aquifers that we use for groundwater, the drinking water, 30% of the water in the UK comes from, that is supposed to be hydraulically non-connected to these shale reservoirs. So the question is, how can they be connected? If they're not connected, if the, if the groundwater is at maybe a couple hundred metres deep, so 200, 300 metres deep, and the shale is at two kilometres, three kilometres deep, how can there be connections on how that occurs? And there are a couple of sort of modes of failure that have been sort of theorized. One is this pre-existing fractures. Another is if ground operations on the surface, if there's spillage, I mean, you're handling methane, but you're also handling these other fluids. If something spills, then there's a potential for that. So it's operation as well. There's potential for there to be contamination of the groundwater. And finally, the, the big one is the well. So where we should focus on our efforts and making sure the well is really correct and not allowing these uh, leakage in between the vertical well and the aquifer. The vertical well runs 
from the surface to the d- deep shale, two kilometers, three kilometers deep, and it runs through the groundwater layers and a whole bunch of other layers. And then there's the horizontal well, which is a big new part of the technology since about 2005. It's really viable. And that, uh, that actually re- really has reduced the number of wells, the number of vertical wells. So this potentially, if the horizontal drilling becomes more significant and the number of vertical wells goes down, then potentially that could also lower the risk profile. What exactly are these chemicals we've been talking about? Are they something we should worry about? Again, the, I mean, the UK is doing the right thing here. The EA has rights to require everything that's injected to be disclosed. So there has been some historical uh, situation in the US where that's not been the case. So that's a big difference. The fracking fluid is 90% water, more or less. So significant quantities of water are needed, something like 4 to 12 Olympic-sized swimming pools of water. And that's injected into these wells and then flows back out, 25 to 75% of that flows back out of the short term, and over the long term, there's, the rest of it sort of seeps out. So 90% of, the wa- of that fracking fluid is water. About 9% of it is something called propant, which is usually sand. And what the propant does is it wedges the fractures open, keeps the, the gas flowing, basically. And then there's some other small components, less than 1%, and uh, one of them uh, is friction reducer, which is, again, to try and get the propant really wedged incorrectly. I mean, you can find some of these friction reducers in things like face cream. So there's nothing necessarily in that list that's been disclosed to the EA so far. There's nothing that really causes too many alarms. But of course, there is potential if if you have a lack of transparency, there is potential that other things are uh, in there. And the other concern is this flowback water, which once it's in the shale formation, it's exposed to the uh, the rock and it can pick up minerals and possibly uh, mildly radioactive things as well. So that might also be a concern. So those are sort of the mechanisms. We've got an email in from Hetty Jacobs earlier in the week and she's in Australia. She said they've over there got numerous reports of polluted water and they're one of the driest continents on the planet. If we need to dispose all this water or clean it up, would some areas of the world be concerned about droughts? The the Absolutely. I mean, if, I mean you have to make a trade-off here. If you're going to use significant quantities of water for this, then like anything, you have to get that water from some place. So how do you look at managing that? Uh, well, you could take the water from a, a water utility, or you could take the water from an aquifer, or you could take the water from a river system or a lake, or you could use possibly saline water, which is so brackish water or what is essentially wastewater already to do that. And that's something they're looking at doing now as well. But uh, absolutely, I mean, there is no doubt there is significant quantities of water that are needed, and that water needs to be trucked in sometimes and trucked out and uh, treated and disposed of in a reasonable way. So what can we do to minimize the risk? My view on this is sort of agnostic, and I'm an engineer, so if we're going to talk about this stuff, let's talk, identify which risks are sort of real and significant locally and which ones are less real and less significant locally, and let's try and make sure that we place our effort and our legislation and our monitoring and transparency on where the risks are. So things like making sure the wells are correct, making sure you you know the, the a baseline of methane already in the ground, you have increased monitoring, you have proper regulation, you have competent regulation, inspection, things along those lines are sort of an ounce of prevention is better than pound of cure kind of thing. Thanks, Jeff. That was Jeffrey Parker from Cambridge University Engineering Department. And thanks also to all of our other panellists. I want to come very quickly back to Tony here. We've heard from everybody there are risks, but they're small. I mean, if we can keep everything, we put the proper regulation in. Is fracking something that we should be looking to, to at least in the short term, fulfil some of our energy needs? 
So this brings us back to the big question of the climate change issue. That's the one where the risk remains huge and the one that we can't mitigate through the ways in which we develop this technology unless we had a major commitment towards carbon capture and storage. And we don't have that. There isn't a clear government signal that we're going to have that linked to this technology. So I remain sceptical on the climate change subject, even though I hear the engineers telling us we can manage some of the risks around, for example, groundwater contamination. And potentially we might be able to minimise some of the impacts on the landscape Although, having seen some of this in the United States, I I remain quite troubled about that too. Well, it doesn't seem like this debate is going to end any time soon, but thanks so much to all of our panellists for taking part in the debate. There's just time now for our question of the week, and Hannah Critchlow scales new heady heights in an attempt to answer this. This week, we bang our heads together by cracking into a question that Ben Barnett wrote in with. If we dropped a penny from the top of the Burj Khalifa in Dubai and it hit somebody on the ground, what would the consequences be? So, a penny hitting your head after an approximate 830 metre drop, ouch, or no effect at all. To find out which, we'll climb to the top of an iconic Cambridge spire with the engineering don, Dr Hugh Hunt. So we're going up the uh, clock tower here in Trinity College and uh, it's about 12 metres up to the top. And I reckon that if we uh, were to drop a penny, then we could estimate how long it takes to get to the bottom. The Trinity Clock Tower is much smaller than the Burj Khalifa, so how can it tell us the top speed a penny can drop on your head at? After a short drop, objects start to be opposed by air resistance, so they reach what we call terminal velocity, a steady speed that can't be increased no matter how far they fall. Because we know how fast gravity makes things accelerate, we can work out how fast a penny would fall without air resistance and then see if it reaches terminal velocity even from our lowly vantage point in Cambridge. Over to Hugh. It should take about 1.6 seconds to reach the bottom. If it takes longer than that, then we're um, reckoning that we must have reached terminal velocity. And if it reaches terminal velocity, then it will be dropping at the same speed in Cambridge as in Dubai. Speed is important as the faster the penny travels, the harder it hits and the more damage it will do to a head. We better work on the assumption that a penny landing on somebody's head will kill somebody, so we better make sure there's nobody standing underneath. Right, I got my penny, and I'm going to see if I can work out how fast it takes to go over the edge. Three, two, one, go. So that was about two seconds, which means that the penny is very definitely reaching terminal velocity, even after a distance of 12 metres. So dropping it from a higher tower... My guess is that it won't be going really much faster than the speed that we saw just then. We're really talking maybe 5 to 10 metres per second, which is no more than 15 or 20 miles an hour. It's not that dangerous. You can easily throw the penny that hard, and if you were cross with somebody and you threw a bundle of coins at them, it might hurt, but they're not going to die. Thanks, Hugh. So it seems that if we dropped a penny from the top of the tallest building in the world, then due to air resistance, the penny would only reach about 15 to 20 miles per hour. And Hugh doesn't think that an object with this speed and mass would cause significant damage to your head. That is, unless you spin the penny. Like a spinning wheel, then it would slice through the air with far less air resistance, move much faster and could hit you edge on, so it would be much more dangerous. 
Well, with that happily resolved, we next stick our nosy beaks into this. Hi, my name's Adam from Melbourne, Australia, and my question is this. How come in pregnancy, especially early pregnancy, the sense of smell seems to be heightened? What's the reason for this and what's the science behind it? Have you had any experiences with this? Or do you have any idea why and how senses might be highly sensitive during pregnancy? Hannah Critchlow, and if you think you have an answer, you can send your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientist, you can write on our Facebook page or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. That's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and to Ginny Smith for joining me. The producer was Dominic Ford. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. Thank you very much for listening. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.